How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture emphasizes the fact that in our our enjoyment of fellowship with God, when we sin, that fellowship is broken. The way to recover, to keep moving in fellowship, is to uh, confess our sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge those sins in uh, prayer to God the Father. And instantly we're (coughs) forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and we can continue to move forward in our fellowship with God. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, it's a great privilege we have to meet, to encourage one another, to focus upon your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, of the fact that you make promises to us and that you are You do not forget them. Uh, You are always faithful, even though at times, due to circumstances, we often uh, get our our eyes off of you and onto people, events, and emotions. Father, we pray that as we look at our study, as we go through the details and the introduction and through Romans 9 to 11, may we be reminded that the point, point that Paul is making here is that just as you will be faithful to your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the Jewish people, so you will be faithful to your promises to us. And just as you will bring to conclusion uh, your plan and purposes for Israel, you will bring to conclusion your plan and purpose for the church, and that we have the privilege of serving you as members of the Church of Jesus Christ and in a training for our future roles that we may serve you and rule and reign with him in the, in the future kingdom. We pray that we might uh, really be challenged, have our understanding increased and strengthened through the study we have this morning, I mean this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Romans chapter 9, and at the risk of being redundant at the beginning of each one of these classes, I'm going to review the same basic material so we understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Romans 9 through 11 is really the foundation in the New Testament for our understanding of God's future plan and purpose for Israel, for ethnic Israel. One of the things that struck me as I was reading through some of the quotations last time from a couple of different books, I brought some books this time for a little show and tell, Uh, two books that I've been uh, researching, reading uh, through, Israel and the Church, The Origin and Effects of Replacement Theology by Ronald DeProse, D-I-P-R-O-S-E. He has spoken at pre-trib a couple of different times. You can go to the pre-trib website, which is www.pre-trib.org. All the papers that have been given over the past 21 or 22 years are up there under archives, and you can go through and find some of the presentations, the papers that have been written by uh, these guys, as well as uh, the book. They uh, have a lot of this information, much more detailed than what um, I'm presenting. And then another book by Michael Vlock, 
who is a professor of theology at the Master's Seminary in California, and his work also on uh, replacement theology called Has the Church Replaced Israel? A Theological Evaluation. One of the things I noticed in both of their quotes, this is a trouble of having once worked as a writer and an editor, is you notice little things sometime later that, well, you could have said it a little better, but to the writing of books, this is a paraphrase from Ecclesiastes, which says to the um, writing of books, but to the editing of books, there is no end. And you can edit and edit and edit and proofread and proofread and proofread, and it's going to come back from the printer with errors you can't believe you left in there. Trust me, I had an extremely detail-oriented Hebrew professor, and believe me, to be a good Hebrew scholar, you have to be very detail-minded, and uh, he published a commentary on Genesis and used his doctoral students to proofread the manuscript some some three or four hundred times, and it came back from the publisher with several hundred errors in it, even after they had proofed all the all the proof copies and everything else, just little things that uh, that escape you. So you read it, you get too familiar with it. But one of the things I noticed that I think is an important thing, I called up Tommy Ice, we had a discussion about it, he agreed, is that in their quotes they would talk about, eth- uh, about uh, God's plan for national Israel. I don't think that's that's a good the, the right adjective. It's ethnic Israel. And the work that I've done on Romans 11 in the past, I always use that term. God has a future plan for ethnic Israel. National Israel, yes. But there's not always been a time when there was a state, of an, a Jewish state in the land of Israel. God always has a plan for the future of ethnic Israel. That's a broader term and I think a more uh, a more precise term when we're talking about uh, the future of Israel. Two things I've pointed out in the past that have plagued Christianity. This has created uh, incredible, uh, incredible horrors down through the centuries. Uh, millions of people have been killed. Millions have gone through untold suffering. Nations have risen and fallen as a result of these errors. And it's all because of fallacious interpretation, as I pointed out. The first is replacement theology, and the second, anti-Semitism. We talked about the issues related to uh, hermeneutics or interpretation. Uh, two or three lessons back, the last couple of lessons, we looked at replacement theology. And then I was going to try to do anti-Semitism in one shot, and there was I was just reading too much, and there was too much to cover, and I'm not going to make it in one shot. I'm going to do two shots because there's one particular thing I wanted to do tonight and we'll have time for is setting the stage for uh, <clears throat> anti-Semitism in the Old Testament. So we have these two errors that have to be addressed, and, and anti-Semitism is coming back uh, and intensifying every year. It's interesting, as I have gone through some of my reading I have looked at um, a book that has been incredibly influential over the years, came out, I think the first printing, according to the book, was in 74. I'm not sure when Pastor Theme first taught on anti-Semitism, my, if my memory is right, and it goes back to when I was in early high school, so that's fuzzy. Um, 
I think he taught about anti-Semitism and the dangers of anti-Semitism before the 67 war in Israel. Now, the reason that's important is up until the 67 war, when Israel defeated the uh, Arab nations and threw uh, Jordan out of, out of the, the West Bank and, and East Jerusalem, there was... Uh, uh, <clears throat> the U.S. really wasn't that strong a backer of Israel. Once Israel demonstrated their ability to uh, defeat their enemies, then all of a sudden, you know, America loves a winner. We love an underdog, but we love a winner, and Israel was a little bit of both. So we became much more supportive. It was LBJ that that also was responsible for uh, all of a sudden deciding to throw the weight of the U.S. behind Israel in that uh, conflict, and afterwards, uh, one of the uh, one of the good things that LBJ did. Sometimes I think in the last 50 or 60 years, some of the presidents that we've had have been there solely because of what they were going to do in relation to Israel. Harry Truman, LBJ, Nixon, uh, just to name a few. Anyway, Pastor Theme uh, came out, did, did a series on anti-Semitism in. Uh, I think it was in the mid to late 60s, and then it was uh, converted into a book by Ursula Kemp. Ursula Kemp was my first grade Sunday school teacher. She's still alive. She's probably 89 now. Actually came over here to West Houston Bible Church a couple of years ago and sat down in the front row. And uh, she is a uh, converted Jew. She was raised in eastern Germany, an area that's now, it's Rolov, I think. I'm not sure how to properly pronounce, pronounce it. Uh, she was uh, 11 or 12 when Kristallnacht took place. Her family had to flee by their way out of Germany, went to Shanghai, where she finished high school, met her future husband, who was uh, some 15, 14, 15, 16 years older than she. And some of you might remember him, Scotty. And he was a British uh, in the British constabulary in Shanghai and uh, took her as a as sort of a, a, a driver to a party that another co-worker was uh, having for uh, at Christmas time. And on the way back, Scotty told her, you're the woman I'm going to marry. She thought he was crazy drunk or both. And actually, he convinced her that he was serious, convinced her to write a, uh, help him write a letter, translate it so her father could understand it, asking permission to come and call. A few months later, the Japanese conquered Shanghai. Uh, Scotty was put in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for the duration of, of the war, and they were allowed to write to one another once a month only ten words. Think about that for a writing exercise. She and Betty Theme wrote all the Sunday school curriculum that I grew up under at uh, Baraka Church, a lot of which has been converted into the children's uh, children's material now. But Urs- Ursula wrote, uh, actually did the, did the work on this, and then it was revised later uh, later in the 80s. And this was a book that Tommy Ice, and Tommy stands for, I can't tell you the number of pastors that I know who weren't pastors then, but back in the 70s, they read this book and they realized the importance of Israel and the importance of the Jewish people. And many people who today are staunch, vocal defenders of Israel, like Tommy, got started because they read this book. 
and it is a very well done, uh, very well done book. But it was written in 74, updated in the late 80s, and at that time it cites recent studies by the Anti-Defamation League that anti-Semitism is on the rise. Then during the 90s, Bernard Lewis's book, Semites and Anti-Semites, was revised. It originally came out in the mid-80s in 85. Last revision was in 98, which is this copy. And again, he says that by the late 90s, uh, anti-Semitism is continuing to increase. I've read uh, several other things that I have at home on anti-Semitism, and they say the same thing as late as last year. Uh, Every year, the incidents in Europe, in America... Uh, around the world that are anti-Semitic are on the increase. The memory of the Holocaust is fading. That generation that was involved in those activities is rapidly uh, dying, rapidly leaving the scene. And so um, the Holocaust is moving from an experiential memory to history. And as it moves to history, it fades from significance in in the human race, and that is the ultimate, the the worst form that of anti-Semitism that uh, the human race has experienced. But it's not going to be the worst. The worst will come during the tribulation period, as we will see. Well, Romans chapter nine, Paul is explaining God's faithfulness to Israel, though it might appear at the time that God has forgotten Israel, that Israel seems to be set aside in favor of the church. This is simply a a temporary pause in God's plan for Israel. God still loves the Jewish people. They are still his chosen people. That has not changed. When we get to Romans 11, uh, 1 through 4, Paul again strongly affirms God's love for the Jewish people and that there is a future in God's plan for them. So, anti-Semitism is completely prohibited by the scriptures. The foundation for this takes us back to Genesis chapter uh, 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, specifically in verse 3. This is the foundation for understanding um, that why it is wrong uh, to be anti-Semitic. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This doesn't mean that you're going to like every Jewish person you meet. It doesn't mean you have to like every Jewish person you meet any more than you have to like every Christian you meet. And the scripture says you are to love one another. What this does say is that holding their Jewishness against them is not acceptable. They may not be a nice person, but everybody in any group has members of that group that aren't nice. There are probably people in West Houston Bible Church that other people wish weren't here because they think they give us a bad name. That's just the way it is when you have uh, any group of human beings. So this is the foundation here, and it's repeated again and again through Genesis. God has made a promise And he has set apart the Jewish people. That's why uh, I remember on my first trip to Israel, I was asked, why is it that people call it the Holy Land? And we can't make the mistake of of thinking that it's holy because there's something uh, uh, pure about it. Holy comes from the Hebrew word that means to be set apart. 
It is a set-apart land, and it is. It is set apart for the Jewish people. That's why it's the Holy Land. That is an accurate term. It's a misunderstood term. There's not anything mystical, magical, or special about the soil or anything else, but it is land, a territory that has been permanently set aside by God for the Jewish people. No other nation in history has been given a destiny tied to a piece of real estate like the Jewish people have. That's what makes it special. That's why the Jewish people are a holy people, not in the same sense that we would talk about the church as holy because we're set aside in Christ. It's a different context. The Jewish people are holy because they have been set aside by God for a special plan. They are the ones through whom God gave his revelation. They are the custodians of Scripture from the Old Testament, and they are the uh, nation that God chose through whom to give us the Messiah. And he's not through with them, for there is a future destiny and for, for the Jewish people in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so even today, because of the Abrahamic covenant, which is still in force, it, the Abrahamic covenant has not been set aside. The Abrahamic covenant was not put on hold. Uh, God's plan for Israel as a nation has been put on hold uh, while God is working through the church, but the Abrahamic covenant is still very much in effect as we have, have studied. So we have to understand that any form of negative thinking, any form of negative religious thought, uh, political thought against Israel, and the two are intimately connected usually, uh, in some sense you might be able to separate them, but ultimately they tend to be so interconnected that one it, one affects the other, and all of that comes out of a non-literal uh, view of uh, of Scripture. So I want to go ahead, and we're going to look at this rise of anti-Semitism. Just looking at a couple of cartoons, editorials. Here is a uh, uh, editorial, an anti-Semitic editorial. It's a depiction of the Western Wall. Sometimes it's called the Wailing Wall, but the Western Wall, where Jews come to pray, and it has the word hate there. And the inscription at the bottom says, worshiping their God. This is the, this is the lie that is put out by anti-Semites about Israel. They are filled with hate. They are a racist state. They are an apartheid state. All of this, it's more than just, uh, typical invective coming from, uh, enemies. We look at a number of different wars that have occurred between different, uh, shall we say, historic enemies such as the French and the Germans, the Turks and the Greeks, uh, the Turks and the Armenians. D different groups through history have had ongoing uh, land battles, claims over territory, territorial disputes, and they always generate a certain amount of invective against the enemy. But there's something distinct about what happens with the language against Israel, where the Jewish people are not held to the same standard as everybody else. And that's what makes it anti-Semitism. Then we'll see that there's a rise in what is called a new anti-Semitism, where it does get a little sticky and a little more difficult to uh, understand things because 
because of the Holocaust, a lot of people went underground with their anti-Semitism, and it came out as a disguised form under the form of anti-Zionism. They just masked it, masked it in the form of being anti uh, the state of Israel. And this article in Newsweek says, Today, several isms inhabit the world still. Among the most pernicious are an atavistic anti-Semitism and its 20th century version, anti-Zionism. Atavistic means primitive, an ongoing, you know, for centuries we've had this standard sort of anti-Semitism and it's morphed in the 20th century with the rise of the Jewish state. These isms are graffiti on the wall of history, emblems of a poison still potent and raw, evidenced most recently by the remarks of Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, who said, quote, Today the Jews rule the world by proxy. They get others to fight and die for them. See, this claim that the, there's this Jewish conspiracy, that the Jews are behind the evils of the world. That's part of anti-Semitic thought and talk. Mahathir's words were widely condemned, but such comments obscure a deeper truth about this new strain of anti-Semitism, which is not that it is directed at individual Jews or even at Judaism itself. It is directed rather against the Jewish collective, the modern state of Israel. Now this is, I said Newsweek, this is U.S. News and World Report goes on to say, just as historic anti-Semitism has denied individual Jews the right to live as equal members of society, anti-Zionism would deny the collective expression of the Jewish people, the state of Israel, the right to live as an equal member of the family of nations. Israel's policies are thus subject, are subjected to criticism that cause it to be singled out when others in similar circumstances escape any criticism at all. Surely, if any other country were bleeding from terrorism as Israel is today, there would be no question of its right to defend itself. But Israel's efforts merely to protect its own citizens are routinely portrayed as aggression. It is a double standard. The Deputy Foreign Minister of Israel, Michael... uh, Let me back up a minute. I went past that too fast. Michael Melchior said, The wave of worldwide anti-Semitic attacks in recent months is the worst since the Second World War. This is in July 2002, and again, it's been another 11 years, and everybody says it's even worse than it was 11 years ago. So this goes on and it continues. As we talk about anti-Semitism, it's important to define it. What exactly is anti-Semitism? What I did was I put together a little collection of definitions because not everybody says exactly the same thing, and it helped me helped me kind of think through this issue. Alan Dershowitz, uh, not someone with whom I am always in agreement. In fact, I'm in agreement with him on rare occasions. But his book, The Case for Israel, is pretty good. Uh, a few things that I don't agree with him on, but overall it is an excellent book. And the way he structured it, and I thought I had it with me, but I, I didn't bring it. 
the way he structured the chapters have to do with questions people ask. Is Israel an apartheid state? Did Israel really take advantage of the Jews? Did the early Jews going back uh, take advantage of the Arabs? Did the early Jews moving back into the land, did they really uh, uh, just uh, steal the land from the Arabs? All these questions have to do with the, the types of charges that are typically thrown against uh, the Israeli people. So it's a good resource if you want to learn how to, what the truth is about some of these issues and how to ha- handle those if somebody raises a question. It's a good resource. But he says that uh, a good basic uh, starting definition of anti-Semitism is taking a trait, character trait, or an action that is widespread, that is widespread throughout the human race, if not universal, and blaming only the Jews for it. Everybody's greedy, everybody's materialistic, but we're going to act as if the Jews are the root, the cause, and if it weren't for the Jews, there wouldn't be any greed or materialism or uh, greedy corporations or capitalism or anything like that. Just blame the Jews for everything. On the one hand, they're blamed for capitalism and making money. On the other hand, uh, they're blamed for Marxism because Marx, of course, was Jewish. Many of the early leaders in both the uh, Marxist revolution in Russia were Jews, and then they were all killed. So they get blamed on both sides. Then we have, um, I don't know why that reformatted itself, Ron Rosenblum in a recent book, which is really a collection of essays from a lot of different sources, says defines anti-Semitism this way, that it's insisting that when Jews do wrong, it's because they are Jews not because they are human. Now, he adds something very important to the definition. It's not just having an antagonism towards the Jews and blaming them for something, but they're blaming them because they are Jews. That's a key element uh, in his book, Those Who Forget the Past, The Question of Anti-Semitism. And then we have the definition from the Compact OED, Theory, Action, or Practice, directed against the Jews, hence anti-Semite, one who is hostile or opposed to the Jews, anti-Semitic. Now, what's left out of that definition that Ron Rosenblum put into his that's crucial? It's that phrase, because they are Jews. It's not just antagonism to the Jews, but antagonism to the Jews because they're Jews. See the same problem in Pastor Theme's definition in... um, his book, Anti-Semitism, where he defines it as opposition to prejudice against or intolerance of the Jewish people. What needs to be added is because they are Jewish. That's the, what drives it. It is because they're Jewish, not just antagonism to the Jew. You can, you can have antagonism toward the French, against the Mexicans, against the Germans, against the Russians, against whomever, but it's that additional element, because they are Jewish, that really uh, ties it together. Notice how the Anti-Defamation League uh, <coughs> puts it. They say it's the belief or behavior hostile towards Jews just because they are Jewish. It may take the form of religious teachings that proclaim the inferiority of Jews, for instance, or political efforts to isolate, oppress, or otherwise injure them. It may also include prejudiced or stereotyped views about Jews. Now, what's important to understand when we start talking about the rise and development of anti-Semitism 
is that it has a spiritual explanation. I use this uh, this illustration Tuesday night. I've used it before, but it, it is the best illustration and fits it. When I read the different works that I've got on anti-Semitism, for example, I've got a four-volume work on the history of anti-Semitism from the time of Christ um, to the present by uh, Leon Polyakov, and it's quite detailed history of anti-Semitism. And then another uh, book I've been skimming through, The Legacy of Islamic Anti-Semitism. That'll just warm your heart every night. the one thing I read is they struggle to explain why this is going on. There's a story that Frederick the Great asked his chaplain one time, and he said, in, in just a couple of words, explain to me, give me a proof that the Bible is true. And, and his chaplain said, sir, it's the Jews. The Jewish people, their continued existence is unique in history. There's no other ethnic group that has generated hostility from every other nation almost on the planet, especially Western nations and uh, Arabic nations. Not so much your uh, Asian nations, but you have uh, virulent anti-Semitism among the nations that have been influenced mostly by Christianity, sadly, and by uh, Islam. That's where you see the most uh, virulent forms of of anti-Semitism. And as you look at their attempts to explain it, why is it that there's just one group of people? You can't name another group of people that has generated the universal hatred that the Jewish people have generated. How can you explain that? How can you explain the fact that this is the same group of people that has managed to survive through 4,000 years of history and all of the nations that have opposed them have been defeated and their uh, anti-Semitism lies in the dustbin of history? Uh, You can't explain that from a rational or empirical basis, and yet that's how they approach it. Remember the illustration. When God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He told them to name all the creatures, to identify things, to uh, guard and keep the garden. Their mission to rule over the planet meant that they had to go out and learn everything they could about the planet and to develop it and to develop the natural resources, to use it uh, under the authority of God as God's uh, representative over the planet. As they empirically investigate things, starting with Adam naming the animals, there are a lot of things that they could observe. But they could not observe a spiritual reality, which is the, which was related to the prohibition that God gave them, that if they ate from one particular tree, they would die instantly spiritually. They could eat from all of the other trees in the garden. They could eat from everything else that God provided. But if they ate from that one tree, they would die spiritually. The only way they could access that truth was for God to tell them. They couldn't learn it through experience. They couldn't learn it through observation of anything. They couldn't learn it through reason, the use of their intellect. It had to be revealed to them. And when we come to the study of anti-Semitism and asking the question, why, we only can answer it if we take God's version, God's explanation, which ultimately is given in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, and we'll get there next time, but we have to trace it in the Old Testament. And tracing it means tracing God's promise that began in the garden to the serpent and to the woman. Wait a minute, I keep 
There we go. Nope, that's not the right slide. Back it up one more. There we go. After the temptation, yielding to the temptation, when Adam and Eve are spiritually dead, God appeared in the garden. They ran and hid. They sewed uh, fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And then God outlined the consequences of their sin. In doing so, he addressed first the serpent, then the woman, then the man. And he says in his address to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That is an expression of history. There is a conflict between the seed of the serpent, and meaning the serpent, and the seed of the woman, the human race. Specifically, this seed is going to end up being a focus on an individual, which is the Messiah. But here it's a broader, little ambiguous promise, but clearly a promise, and it sets the parameters for understanding human history, that human history is set within the context of a broader warfare, the angelic conflict, the satanic rebellion, a number of different terms have been used to describe this, but it is the fact that God has made a promise to provide a redeemer that will be a human being, a redeemer that will come from the seed of the woman who will provide salvation for the human race. And that's the antagonism. And so Satan's agenda in the Old Testament was to keep that from happening. Once it happened, there were only only a small group of promises that had not yet been fulfilled, and those were related to the Jewish people. So the only way that Satan can block God's plan is to try to destroy all of the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, he tried to destroy the seed of the woman that went through the seed of Abraham, that went through the seed of David, in order to keep the Messiah from coming. Now, if he can destroy all of the Jewish people, then he can say, see, God, you can't control uh, history either with these uh, uh, creatures who have free will. They're just too chaotic. You can't... No one can control it. You can't even be God. Uh, I win because I blocked you from fulfilling your your promises. So we trace through the Old Testament this promise of the seed. Now, the next major mention after Genesis 3.15 is in Genesis 12.7. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your descendants. Now, everywhere I've underlined this word descendants. In the Hebrew, we have the word seed. Seed is a, a... singular noun, but it's among those group of nouns called collective nouns. That means that the same form can either refer to an individual or to a group. You can, you can, uh, the word dear, D-E-E-R, is the same in the singular form and the plural form, and you have to judge from context whether it's talking about a singular or, or a group, a plurality. The same is true with this word, which sets up some interesting uh, exegetical issues I won't, get a ch- I won't go into in this study. So God promises to the descendants, the seed, singular, but it's translated correctly as descendants in these contexts. Uh, he's going to give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to his descendants. Genesis 13, 15, he repeats that, to all, all the land to your descendants. Uh, Genesis 13:16. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. It's the word seed every single time. Genesis 15:5. 
Again, as innumerable as the stars in the heavens, so shall your descendants be. Then we get into the fun verse, Genesis 22:17. God says, "Blessing, I will bless you, or I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate." And it's interesting, this is one of those funky passages I've told you about where the Masoretic text monkeys with the text a little bit. So it's not messianic, but what you have in the in and uh, in, in a number of the other readings is not a plural. Their enemies. It's, so it's in, it's his enemy. So it's obvious the word seed shifts in the mind of the writer to a singularity, an individual, not the collective of the descendants of Israel. Uh, so your descendants shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed, see that begins right away. This is the verse Paul quotes in Galatians chapter 3 when he emphasizes the fact that it's a singular and thus it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we follow the seed. This is important. Now it's coming through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the Semitic line. Now the word Semitic is really sort of an ethnic a term to describe those who are descendants of Noah's son, Shem. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those descendant from Shem, which includes many of the Arab tribes, are called uh, Semites from that name. It includes both Arabs and Jews, and sometimes you'll hear people say that, well, we're not really anti-Semitic because we're Arab. How can we be anti-Semitic? We're Semitic too. Well, you can have anti-Semitic Jews as well, and there are some who are that way. They're called self-loathing Jews. This is a whole different uh, minority category. But the term anti-Semitic is this assault on Jews because they're Jews. It's an it's a anti-Jewish belief. It's a hatred for the Jews. Now, uh, Abraham's descendants were targeted, and th- then we get a refinement of the seed in the Davidic covenant. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, God said, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So now we have this term seed identified again as a singular, as an individual, but now it's a descendant of David. And so there's also assaults on the Davidic line to prevent the Messiah. So historically, as we go through the Old Testament, we see various assaults on the seed. There's Cain's murder of Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, seen as one of the first attacks on the seed. Then there's the corruption of the human seed through the infiltration of the fallen angels called the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, a term for uh, always used for angels, but here it refers to fallen angels who uh, took on human form and took human wives so that they could corrupt the human gene pool to prevent a true seed of the woman from coming from God incarnating as a human being, Genesis 6, 1 through 12. Then we have the attempted rapes of Sarah and Rebekah when they're included in the harems of the Philistine leaders and the Egyptian Pharaoh. Uh, that's described in Genesis 12, 10 through 20 and 26, 1 to 18. If they had been taken by the Pharaoh or by the um, uh, ruler of the Philistines, then this would have 
uh, caused great doubt upon whether or not they were uh, their their offspring were the offspring of Abraham or Isaac. Uh, then Rebekah's plan to cheat Esau out of his birthright and the consequent enmity between Esau against Jacob. Maybe the brothers will kill each other off. This will stop the line. Uh, the murder of the male children in Egypt by the Pharaoh in Exodus one fifteen to twenty two. Uh, we have the attempted murder uh, uh, murders of David by Saul in First Samuel eighteen ten and eleven and several other places. Uh, Queen Athaliah's attempt to destroy the ro- royal seed in Second Chronicles twenty two ten. Remember, she killed all but one who was hidden. Josiah was hidden uh, by the high priest uh, in the temple. And then Haman's attempt to slaughter all of the Jews in Persia, uh, described in the book of Esther. Uh, this uh, uh, also attempts by uh, leading the Jews into idolatry, the worship of uh, Moloch, where they would immolate their children in the fires of, uh, of Moloch's belly, where it's alive. Uh, sacrifice as a burnt offering. Uh, this again is an attempt to destroy the Jews through the uh, idols. You have Herod's attack against the children of Bethlehem in Matthew 2.16, and then uh, many attempts during Jesus' life, uh, which uh, are part of the attempts to derail him from being uh, the Messiah. What I want to look at the rest of the, this evening is this one of the first major attempts or early major attempts in the Old Testament to destroy uh, all of the Jewish people in a huge, huge uh, assault, and that occurred under the Persian Empire during the rule of Xerxes, and this is in the book of Esther. So turn with me to the book of Esther, and we're going to take about 20, 25 minutes and just skim the book of Esther. This is one of those great stories that I think suffers to some degree if we get just do sort of a verse-by-verse or paragraph-by-paragraph analysis of it because we lose the drama of it. I mean, this is told as a, as a, written as a drama. It is incredibly intense. It is a great story. And you wouldn't take a, a play and watch it one scene at a time over a period of, uh, of 20 or 30 weeks. Now, there's benefit in doing that because you can teach a lot of different things, but we also gain much just from reading and taking in the entire uh, episode. There's a couple of things that are unique and distinct about the book of Esther. Uh, first reason it's distinct is that it's the only book in the Old Testament that has no mention of God. God is not mentioned, and for that reason, there were some who doubted whether or not it should be included in the Old Testament canon. But it was accepted by the Jewish authorities even before the time of Christ as part of the canon of Scripture. It teaches something. It was part of the group known as the writings. Remember, the Old Testament is divided into uh, three groups, uh, the Torah, the books, five books of the law, the uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. Uh, this is in the section of the writings, as is Daniel. And there's something distinct about both Daniel and Esther in that they depict the Jewish people in the diaspora. They are out of the land uh, that God has promised to, to them, and they are living 
in a pagan world, much as the church is living in a hostile world today. And so there are certain lessons and application that we can take from it. How do we live wisely in the midst of a hostile environment? Daniel and his friends demonstrate a lot of wise principles in how to live in the midst of a pagan environment without taking everything to the level of a head-to-head confrontation. And so they avoid a lot of confrontation by wisdom and the way they handle uh, the conflict. The same as can be seen with Esther. Esther showed a remarkable amount of wisdom. But God is in the background here. That's the, the, the fact that God is not mentioned doesn't mean God's not involved. It is to teach the fact that, that in certain times of history, God is not directly involved in things or he's not seen as being directly involved. He is the hidden puppet master behind the scenes uh, overseeing the events in history, but he's not there in an overt way. He is definitely providing for and protecting the Jewish people outside of the land in a hostile environment, but he's not seen. Neither is Satan seen. Like we see Satan in the book of Job. Satan is the one who goes to God and wants to test Job. We are, the, the curtain is drawn back so that we can see what's going on in the heavenly throne room when we're looking at the book of Job. But the writer of Esther doesn't pull the curtain back for us. So we just see things as we do in our day-to-day lives as they are without uh, an exposure of the sp- spiritual realities behind the scenes, and we come to understand God's hidden hand and his providential protection. <laughs> the events take place uh, during a time in the reign of Xerxes when he has suffered military defeat by the, by the Greeks, and he's come back and he is uh, not in the best of moods, and he is trying to drown out his, uh, some of his sorrows because of his military defeats. And the book begins by sort of setting the stage in the first chapter by showing his uh, why he is looking for a wife. Now, we see that God is really working behind the scenes here. What happens is he throws a party. This party goes on for a while. His wife, Queen Vashti, is throwing a, a feast for the women at the same time. And on the seventh day, as they uh, reached a certain stage of drunkenness in, in uh, the king's party, he wants to bring the queen out in order to display her beauty uh, before all of his uh, men friends. Now, there's a hint there that this is extremely inappropriate, but we don't know exactly uh, what that entails. And uh, so she refuses to do it, but in the, according to the laws of the Persians, uh, this is an affront that, the, that is really punishable by death. Xerxes is gracious. He doesn't have her executed, but he does banish her from the court, and uh, for all practical purposes, he divorces her. This sets the stage for searching for a new wife. And so he begins, has a beauty contest, talent contest, and all of the uh, best virgins in the land come forward to see who will be chosen by the king. It was a 12-month training process where they prepared them uh, before they came to the before the king. And one of the young ladies that comes is a young Jewish lady, young Jewish girl by the name of Hadassah. Uh, her Persian name was Esther. 
and her uncle, or actually a cousin, is Mordecai. We're told in chapter 2, verse 7, that Mordecai had had raised her from childhood, uh, that uh, that he was uh, she was his uncle's daughter. So he was Mordecai was actually a cousin of Esther, and she was of course much much younger. And her father and mother died, and so Mordecai raised her, and so he encourages her to go forward, and she goes forward. And uh, but she he warns her not to tell anybody that she's Jewish to keep that a secret. And this is emphasized twice in chapter twenty. In verse ten, we're told Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Now, why Mordecai did that, we don't know. But this is important as the story unfolds because as the enemy. Uh, Haman comes along. Uh, he is he hates the Jewish people. He hates Mordecai, which he transfers to all of the Jewish people. And if he had known that Esther was Jewish, this would have changed the dynamics. So, uh, for whatever reason, again the providential uh, oversight of God, uh, Mordecai uh, stresses that she's not to let anyone know that she's Jewish or who her relatives are. And so uh, she is uh, presented before the king, and the king is going to be uh, just fall in love with her, love at first sight, and she is the one that is going to be invited to be his uh, his new queen. Now in chapter 3, all of a sudden we shift to the strong uh, baseline, and the evil uh, villain comes on the scene, uh, Haman. And if you go down to one of the Jewish bakeries in town, you go over to Three Brothers over in Memorial uh, City area, you can buy Hamantaschen. Hamantaschen is a tri-corner uh, little cookie that they eat at the Feast of Purim. This is the origin of the, uh, the Feast of Purim, one of the Jewish holidays. And every year they put on a little uh, uh, morality play and the way you know the bad guy is he wears a little tri-corner hat. And that's how Haman, uh, Haman is recognized. And so uh, the Hamantaschen is a tri-corner representing that. So, and they're not bad. They have different little fruit fillings, and they're pretty tasty. Uh, so uh, uh, Haman is identified as an Agagite. Now, Agag was the king of the Amalekites, uh, at the time of Saul. Remember, I talked about this the other night, and on Tuesday night, that the Amalekites were a traditional enemy of Israel, and they had been, uh, they were sort of a tribe, uh, a large tribe of uh, Bedouin or desert pirates, and they were constantly attacking different groups all through the Middle East. They were a real scourge at that time. And um, so God directs Saul to kill them, to kill them all, all the men, women, children, sheep, goats, cattle, everything. Saul disobeyed. He doesn't kill them all. He lets uh, Agag survive, and it is uh, believed that's very possible. The reason Haman is called an Agagite is because he is a descendant of Agag. He's an Amalekite. He has a history of being the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of Israel. And so he comes and goes, he rises in the ranks in the administration of Xerxes, 
And when he comes through the gates into the palace, uh, everybody bows and scrapes and does homage to him except for one man, Mordecai. And every day, everybody shows him this deference and respect and feeds his pride and arrogance except for Mordecai. And it gets under his skin so that he builds up this, this hatred for Mordecai and he transfers that when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, he transfers that to all of the Jewish people, and he builds this intense hatred uh, for the Jews. And in verse four, chapter three, we read, "Not happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would and he would not. That is, uh, the other men at the gate spoke to Mordecai daily to come on, you know, bow and scrape to Haman, you know, show him a little respect. He wouldn't do it." And then uh, they told Haman that uh, Mordecai uh, was Jewish. And so then Haman, in verse 6, he sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. That's the uh, uh, Persian name for Xerxes. Uh, that he wanted to kill the people of Mordecai. So he goes to, he goes to, to Ahasuerus, goes to Xerxes, and uh, first of all, he decides we've got to have a date when we're going to have this uh, uh, empire-wide assault on, and kill all the Jewish people. So they're going to cast lots called poor. So the pur- plur- plural of poor, one lot, two lots would be Purim. This is where we get the name for the feast, the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Casting Lots. So they cast lots. They pick a date in the 12th month, the month of Adar, and this is when they're going to have this assault. He goes to the king, tells the king that he's going to give an enormous amount of money into the treasury if uh, the king will uh, sign this decree to, for the destruction of all these people who are really the enemies of the Persians and the enemies of the king. And the king doesn't really know what's going on, and he gets sucked in by his advisor. Uh, he's kind of an absent king at this point. And we're told in verse 10 that the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So again, we get this drumbeat role. This is the enemy of the Jewish people. So they send out couriers all over the land to get all the all the military, the militia, the National Guard, everybody all armed, ready to go. And on the 13th of Adar, they're going to kill, or excuse me, they're going to kill all of the, all of the Jews. Now God is working behind the scenes. So no matter how dark things may appear in your life or mine, God is always in control. And we never know what God is doing. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And the right hand is doing something very interesting. So Mordecai finds out about this. And he is just terribly upset, as you can imagine. And he tears his clothes and he puts on uh, ashes and sackcloth, goes out to the midst of the city. And when this visual expression of his grief comes to Esther's attention, and she's trying to get Haman to, I mean, uh, get Mordecai to tell her uh, what's going on? And so he eventually gets a message to her and and tells her that this is really um, a, a position that God has placed her in to come to the aid uh, of her people. And at first she's a little resistant. And then in verse 13 of chapter 4, uh, let me see if I've got this on a slide. 13, yeah, in chapter, um, let me say 13. And the letters were sent by couriers into all, 
No, that's in chapter 3. I'm in chapter 4. There we go. 4. 13 reads, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. No one may know you're a Jew, but they'll find out, and you're not going to be able to escape. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Now, that's his faith in the promise of God. It's not stated as such, but we know that's what's there. That even if you don't rise up, if you're not the one to take advantage of this and to be part, uh, be blessed by playing a role in the deliverance of the Jews, God's going to bring somebody else along because God's not going to allow this to happen. That's the subtext. And so he says, but you and your father's house will perish yet. Yet he says, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a great line. We never know what opportunities we might have in whatever place and circumstance that God has placed us. So Esther rises to the challenge, and she tells Mordecai to gather all the Jews for a time of prayer and a time of fasting, and they do so. And she gathers together, and she sets a plan. Now, this is a fabulous plan. She's thought this through. We were not told what went into this and how she came up with the plan or, or anything, but she comes up with this plan, and rather than just confronting Xerxes with what's going on, she, she, when she goes before him and he recognizes her, instead of saying right away what the problem is, she's going to build a trap for Haman. And it's very subtle, and she shows a lot of restraint and discipline and skill. This is a great illustration of what I've been talking about uh, in terms in Proverbs on Sunday mornings in terms of wisdom. This is a great illustration of chachma, of skill. So after three days of prayer and fasting, she gets all dressed up, puts on her finest royal robes, and she's going into the inner court in the king's palace. Now, in, in Persian law, if she came out into the open and the king did not want to recognize her, then that's a death penalty. But if he picks up his, his uh, staff and holds it out, and then she will come, place her hand on it, he's accepted, and he allows... Uh, her to come forward. So he holds out his golden scepter and accepts her, and she comes in, and she says that she wants to invite him and Haman to come to dinner the next day. And so the next day they come to dinner, and they have a nice dinner, a nice banquet of wine, and there the king says, well, what is it that you request? And she said, I'd like for you all to come back tomorrow. She's not in a hurry. How many times when we're witnessing to somebody, when we're dealing with some problem in life, we get in a hurry. We want to rush things. She's very calm, very relaxed, and she is waiting on the Lord. This is a great example of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. God's working behind the scenes. So... She's going to invite them. Now, this has just so fed Haman's ego. He goes home, and he's just so excited. He's just dancing on air. Uh, verse 9 says, So uh, Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart, but when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, 
and that he did not stand or tremble before him. He was filled with indignation against Mordecai, just ruined his whole day. He goes home frumpy and grumpy and kicking the cat and uh, throwing everything against the wall. And, um, he goes home and he calls for his wife and her friends, and she, he begins finally to get back in a better mood and tell him of all the great things that are going to happen, riches, honor, position, and power. And he is counting all of his chickens before they hatch, as it were. He is living as if this is going to happen. He's created a false scenario for himself. And he says, I've been invited back by the queen uh, with the king tomorrow, and wonderful things are going to happen. But I've got this problem with Mordecai. He sits outside the king's gate, and he doesn't give me any respect. So his wife comes, and friends say, well, go ahead and build the gallows. If you're going to have this much power, go ahead and build the gallows, get everything ready to execute Mordecai and to hang him for treason. And you're going to have the power to do that. So he issues the orders to have the gallows built. Uh, he's just just rubbing his hands together in glee over the fact that he's going to be raised to this position of power, and at the same time he'll be able to destroy his enemy and all of those, all of the Jews along with it. But that night, God's working. Xerxes can't sleep. He gets up in the middle of the night, like many of us do, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. We turn on the television. We pick up a book, hoping something will help put us back to sleep. So he calls for one of his chroniclers. History puts people to sleep. So he wants him to read through the chronicles of the king. And in that, it's discovered of an event that I passed over earlier that Mordecai had discovered an assassination plot against the king a few years earlier. And this had been recorded. Mordecai had reported those who had uh, planned this uh, assassination of Artaxerxes, and he had never been rewarded. So all of a sudden, this is read to the king, and he says, well, what honor or dignity was given to Mordecai for, for saving my life? And they said, well, nobody did anything for him. So the king said, well, who is in the court? So they heard Haman outside. They said, well, bring him in. And the king says, well, come on, what, would I, what should I do to honor someone who has done great things for the king? And Haman, of course, thinks he's ta- talking about him, and he's so self-absorbed, he thinks, oh, this is exactly what I would want. So he said, well, bring a royal robe and a royal horse that the king has ridden upon, and bring that and put one of the king's uh, princes before him, uh, leading the man through the city, proclaiming that thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And so the king tells Haman, hurry up, get the robe and the horse, and go get Mordecai and put him on the horse and go through the city. You could just imagine how Haman felt at that point, uh, worse than being sucker punched. He, he is just, he's seething on the inside. So he takes Mordecai, takes him through uh, the house, and then after takes him through the city. And then afterwards, we're told in verse 12, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurries home mourning and with his head covered. He knows that everything is about to crash in on him. He tells his wife, and his wife says, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to, begun to fall, is a Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. 
she prophetically announces his doom. And so the next day, the king and Haman go to dine with Esther. And while they are there, Esther then uh, tells the king how he has been duped into signing this order to bring to, to allow for the uh, assault and execution of all the Jews in the land. And um, she tells him in verse 4, For we've been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. And the king responds, well, who is this? Who is this? Who would dare presume in his heart to do this uh, for the king's, uh, to do such a thing for the king? And she says, it's that wicked, evil adversary sitting right there, Haman. And the king arose, just lost his temper, and you don't want somebody with that kind of power losing his temper against you. And he looks outside, sees the uh, gallows, and orders uh, Haman to be hung uh, immediately upon the gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai. And so Mordecai, rather than um, reaping a judgment against the Jews, loses his life. God is protecting them. And then, of course, this date is still set. The law has still been announced. So what are they going to do to rescue the Jews from the 13th of Adar? And Esther comes to the king again with another plan to allow all the Jews to arm themselves, great principle for self-defense, to arm themselves and to fight off any attacks. And so that is exactly what they did when the orders went out that they could do this. The Jews partied and celebrated all throughout the land, and then they prepared themselves. And we're told at the very end of the story in chapter 9, verse 16, that they killed 75,000 of their enemies. Now, after all that had happened, all the praise that that, uh, Xerxes had for all the Jews in the land, you would think that there would be people who would be smart enough to say, you know, the king likes the Jews now. We're not going to fight against them. But they had so many that fought against the Jews and still tried to kill them that 75,000 of their enemies were still killed that day. That shows the irrationality of anti-Semitism. This is not rational. It's not empirical. We can only understand it if we put it within the framework of spiritual warfare, of the angelic conflict. It has can only have, ultimately, a religious, spiritual uh, explanation. And we'll get into that next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at the rise, the development of anti-Semitism as it is directed against your people, people who are chosen by you for a specific mission in history to be those who are the custodians of Scripture and those who would uh, bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, as Gabriel announced to Mary, the one who would save his people from their sin. And Father, we pray that as we continue to study this, we might recognize how easy it is for people to slip into hostile, negative, disrespectful attitudes towards Jews because they are Jews, and what an evil that is in your sight, that whether they are saved or unsaved, regenerate or not, 
The issue is, that's not the issue. The issue is that you have chosen them. They are the apple of your eye, and therefore we are to uh, bless them, and we are to encourage them and support them because they are your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.